Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi there, and welcome to the Stock Club podcast, coming to you from the top floor of My Wall Street HQ here in Dublin, Ireland. In this week's episode, we're going to give our opinions on the current IPO market, talk about the advent of 5G and the companies that stand to benefit from it, and the two companies that we'd invest in if we were starting our portfolios from scratch. So guys, today, before we get into the recent news section, Maeve, you're going to give us an update on a problem you mentioned a few weeks ago you were having with Apple. Yeah, for anyone who's been waiting patiently, my AirPods uh, debacle has resolved itself. So I had an issue where the AirPods were... There was something wrong with how they were manufactured and they cut my ear open and were very uncomfortable. And I had an excellent customer support experience with Apple. New AirPods, no problem, and uh, store credit for the amount that I purchased. So what are you buying yourself? I don't know. I'm going to go shopping today. That's pretty mm. pretty yeah. good customer service. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I suppose they can afford a $1 trillion company. Um, so moving on from that, we're in the middle of earnings season here at the moment. And um, yesterday, Eventbrite posted their earnings. Rory, was a bit of a disappointment for investors. That's uh, definitely putting it lightly. It was a, it was a very poor report. Um, they missed on uh, earnings, posted a wire loss than expected. Uh, they missed on revenue, not by a lot, but they still missed it. Uh, the current quarter, they're expecting between 74 and 78 million. That's way below the 82 million analysts were expecting. Uh, and it just seems like the they uh, about uh, two years ago, they bought Ticketfly, which was their biggest competitor. Yeah. Um, and they bought that off Pandora Media. And they've basically been trying to integrate the two platforms. They were hoping that it would be done by the summer. Uh, they've said on the earnings call that it's taken longer uh, than expected to, to get going. Uh, I think one of the things, what maybe Wall Street was expecting that the acquisition of Ticketflow would basically just transfer those revenues over to Eventbrite. And that's not really how they've gone about it. They've wanted to move Ticketflow users over to the Eventbrite okay. platform. Yeah. Um, it's just another example of, you know, sometimes acquisitions work out, but very often they end up destroying uh, shareholder value. Uh, we saw it with MindBody before they were acquired last year. They, book, they bought a company called Booker and they had problems integrating integrating that and so yeah the, it seems like you know this was a very poor report the stocks was hammered in uh, after hours trading there expected to open below its IPO price um, the re- the hope is that this is the really um, getting it all out getting all the bad news out in one report Yeah. Um, and that this is the, the start of the next phase which is starting to grow the business again uh, but yeah it's, it was a tough quarter for them uh, the CEO didn't really have the right answers on the earnings call afterwards mm-hmm. So, yeah, disappointed, very disappointed in the stock, and I'm sure shareholders are going to be disappointed in it. But, look, still a very young company, um, new to the public markets. Wall Street does, hasn't really figured out what to expect from them yet. So I still I still love the, the product, I still love the company, and, and I hope this is the, the end of the, the bleeding for the stock. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned that they're quite a, still a young company, so they went public um, last September. Um, and, and that kind of leads into the larger conversation we've been having across the last few podcasts, um, about all the IPOs that are happening at the moment. And um, 
moving on from that, like at the moment, I think everyone knows there's a there's quite a lot of companies going public at the minute. I think Beyond Meat, the um, the vegetarian vegan mm-hmm. burger brand is going public today. I think um, there's Zoom, Pinterest, Lyft, Uber, Slack, uh, Pager Duty. There's just a host of companies going on. So. I think in this episode, we're going to get IPOs out of our system a little bit and talk just generally about all of these IPOs and get some kind of some of the biggest questions some of our um, our listeners have had out of the way. So, um, Emmett, why are there so many companies going public at the moment? Is there any reason why there's such a glut? I think the market is offering really favourable conditions. Yeah. If you're going to float your business with a purpose of maximising a single shot uh, onto your balance sheet, the market is attractive today for businesses. Um, but it, they do, it's a kind of you notice that there's a cyclicality yeah. to IPOs. And in a recent EOP piece that Rory wrote, we could see that there are years that are busy and there are years that are not, and it comes in ebbs and tides. And I think at the moment we're just seeing a lot of businesses that are of interest to us, and most people will have heard of, be it Levi's or, or Beyond Meat or, or yeah. uh, Pinterest. We're seeing brands we know going public. There Months can go by with dozens and dozens of IPOs uh, that of businesses you've never heard of. Okay, yeah. It just so happens that we're looking at IPOs that have, in various forms, grabbed the consciousness of the public. Yeah, and a lot of very kind of tech darlings as well, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when I was researching that uh, IPO piece, I looked back on a piece I wrote four years ago now. Um, and back then, we were everyone was talking about the upcoming Airbnb IPO and the upcoming Uber <laughs> IPO. So uh, it's taken them all a long time to uh, to get to this point. Uh, one of the reasons it's happening, it seems to be happening right now, like very uh, concentrated amount of IPOs happening, is because a lot of them were kind of planning to do it earlier this year, but there was a government shutdown in the US. So the Security and Exchange Commission wasn't operating. So that's just a, a, a hint as to the timing of what they're all happening, like seem to be happening in the same week. Almost. Yeah. yeah. Um, but there's some really interesting companies coming out. Slack, uh, we've talked about before, I think is one of my favorite businesses. Yeah. That's um, heading to be public soon. Yeah. Just mentioning Slack there, Slack are going are going public in quite a different way to, to most other companies. They're filing for a direct listing. What does what's that mean, like as opposed to a normal listing? Yeah, it's the same. So Spotify did it uh, last year. In, instead of doing a big IPO with a with a bank backing them, they're literally just going to list their their shares one day. There won't be the uh, kind of roadshow that usually uh, comes about with an IPO, um, and. Uh, yeah, it's just a way for them to get their, their shares will just appear on the on the market. Yeah, day. it'll be people who own shares selling them. Um, Is there any reason why they choose a direct listing? It's a lot cheaper. Okay, uh, it's they, they you don't have to hire a big underwriter like Goldman Sachs. Uh, there's also uh, the lock-in period that the big banks usually um, demand isn't there either. Yeah, uh, so they can sell their shares uh, quicker, which could be a good or bad thing for uh, yeah. public shareholders. I was wondering, does that mm. signify confidence or, or lack thereof? Well, I mean, the, the, the money saving thing is a big thing. And it's yeah. kind of, Spotify kind of set a trend last year. It was seen as a kind of novel and, and kind of trendy way to go. Yeah. Uh, but yes, yeah, Slack, the email killer. Um, it was one of the big themes a few years ago for Y yeah. Combinator. Yeah, it was. Uh, read the rest one there last week. Um, there was a line in it which I liked, which was uh, they said, like email or the internet or electricity, Slack <laughs> Slack has very general and broad ap- applicability. It is not aimed at one specific preference, but nearly anything that people do together at work. 
Oh, um, golly. <laughs> Maeve, you posted a really interesting piece to our yeah. internal Slack yesterday about Slack. I know, Slack. <laughs> I posted on Slack about Slack. It was a Vox.com piece and uh, I'd recommend everyone reading it and it is, I suppose, leaning towards the parts of Slack that can be perceived as inefficient or problematic. I mean, look, Slack is the bane of a lot of modern tech people's lives, right? And I'm a fan of the company, like you just mentioned, Rory, but I also have some concerns. <laughs> Um, about just how efficient it really does make work. Mm. I mean, like, I suppose their argument would be that before Slack, people were using email, yeah, which was incredibly siloed, yeah, you know, and and there was lots of conversations that people missed out on, and you know, there, I think there is a rich flow of communication that happens between teams that, uh, you know, sometimes people just want to comment, make, leave a comment on, or they yeah. just want to even just read it and absorb it without getting involved now I think Slack's really good for that kind of thing look absolutely I don't actually blame the tool I blame the humans <laughs> <laughs> maybe that, that Giphy integration is <laughs> the main problem it's all about how you use it but it as is. a business they're growing like crazy their uh, revenues were up 88% uh, last year um, it's one of the fastest growing tech companies of, of that size at the moment uh, they said in their S1 that they generate most of their business through word of mouth, but um, I'll note that they spend over 50% of their revenues on sales and marketing. So mm. I take, I, <laughs> yeah. Expensive more than I take that with a pinch of salt. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's one of the ones I really like. Anyone else have kind of favourites at the moment? Well, just before we leave that, it's funny, the network affected. There's a, an entrepreneur here in Dublin called Peter O'Mahony, who's a fabulous guy and, and has built very many successful businesses and he has a story about in the 80s one of his first jobs was selling faxes and he said it was brilliant because once you sold a fax the minute the deal was done you asked the person so who do you speak with the most because I gotta go sell them a fax as well you know and that's a bit a bit like slack I mean it, once you're in you're going to recruit others yeah so I'm curious that they spend so much on marketing yeah so when we were in Times Square there in January, Maeve, we saw one of the big boards above had had a Slack. Yes, I remember that. Was that was that's where that fifty percent is going wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe the integration element of Slack is very important. I suppose, like you look yeah. at modern business today, there's an awful lot more communicating between businesses. You know, we have uh, brokerage partners that we have to talk to on a constant basis, and um, being able to connect with other companies like that so yeah. easily is yeah. is probably quite an important. It's trend. True. It's like an internal email, but for a closed community. Yeah. Yeah, it's very good. Just moving on to another uh, company and a staple of the My Wall Street offices that IPO recently, Zoom. Mm -hmm. um, Zoom has probably been the biggest success this year in terms of IPO or newly listed companies. Um, it's up more than 100% um, from its $36 guide price. But, you know, when you look at other companies like Lyft, which haven't been so successful, what is it about Zoom that, you know, is making investors want to get in, in on this right early? Profits. <laughs> They're yeah. one of the few companies that are that are um, that are that are profitable. They've gone public recently, uh, and quite profitable. They're doing quite well and growing very fast. Yeah, but you and me kind of disagree on Zoom. Right? We do. Yeah, I mean, I said to you yesterday when we were chatting, Roy, that they have first mover advantage, which actually, on reflection, they don't. First mover advantage is not, is a documented strategic advantage that is notorious for being very time limited so being first out of the trap is another way of putting it yeah. an advantage. doesn't mean you're going to win the race but um, it was only after I said it to you Roy that I realised they actually do, did not and do not have a first mover advantage you, you could argue Skype had first mover advantage 10 years plus yeah. before mm. Zoom um, 
Slack, as we just discussed, have a video feature, which, all, for good or bad, we just don't use. I mean, we use Zoom. And, and, and again, bringing in the other conversation we had, uh, Zoom also has that network effect, a bit like the facts. If you send somebody an invitation to a meeting and Zoom is the way you connect, they will connect via Zoom. So it is um, a business that I see growing rapidly and and again to the american example in jfk we saw that the, the, yeah exactly they had the our departure hall painted with their with their corporate <coughs> uh, branding so like zoom no doubt is hot at the moment i think the evolution of telecommunication systems is going to erode something that zoom is quite good at which is uh, very low latency or the ability to uh, speak to somebody without any jitter or delays and in fact, yesterday, Maeve and I were speaking with one of our customers who is down on the Gold Coast of Australia. And uh, actually, Tim is is quite the personality down there. Absolutely. Tim Faulkner is, I suppose you'd call him the modern... Um, he's the wildlife king. Yeah, he's the wildlife king. Mm. And um, he's, I suppose, the new Steve Irwin. Is that fair enough? I think Tim would like to take that. Yeah, that title. <laughs> sure. Yeah. But we uh, connected with Tim via Skype. And maybe you were in one office. I was five kilometres away in our other office, and Tim is in Australia. And it was and deeply problematic. It was a huge, a huge <laughs> inconsistency. And um, you know, Zoom is a far more reliable service, and they have a kind of carrier grade service, if you like. So certainly for now, I like them, but I, I can't see how over the medium term the likes of Slack and the likes of FaceTime and whoever else is out there, whatever else is out there doesn't kind of kind of hurt their business. Yeah. And let's get down to the real question then. Would you ever invest in an IPO? What, what you know, there's all this excitement about a company going public, but yeah. should we be trying to get in on those first days or should we be waiting a while? No, definitely not. Shouldn't go in on the first day. Yeah. Never on the first day. I've no doubt I have invested in IPOs. And what I mean by that is within the first few weeks of going live. Yeah. Um, and coming back to lockup periods, as Rory mentioned, with Slack's direct listing, when you think about businesses that are IPOing, generally the insiders, the founders and the first set of uh, team members, the first mm. employees and recruits have a bunch of shares and they're they're waiting for liquidity events. Nobody got rich on the journey of, of a startup through their salary. They're actually waiting for a day where they can take some money off the table. Yeah. It's a very human condition. It's You only live so many years and it's only fair that after X number of years working hard on a business you've worked in pre-flotation goes live that you should be allowed to cash in. And that's just life planning. Um, and it's an inevitable force that occurs when your business goes live. So early um, employees of Slack will see a day very soon where they can take some money off the table and and then people try and read into that. Insiders are selling. But there is a huge amount of research done on this, uh, on insider buying and selling, and you cannot really read into insider selling so easily because generally it's just somebody wants to buy something yeah. uh, in their private life. So um, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> Should we invest in a company when it goes public? Um, we, we, uh, Let I, I'd, I'd rather leave it for a quarter Let or two. Yeah, for just sure. on another one that's gone uh, public and done very well is Pinterest. Yeah. 
uh, which uh, is a weird one for us because it doesn't seem to be as big over here as it is in the States. They have 80 million users mm. in the States. I've never been on Pinterest once. Shout out to my Canadian friend Jess, who, in her own words, Pinterests hard. <laughs> yeah, really? People she really do. Wow. Yeah, I used it for her wedding and mood yeah. boards and interiors. Right. And so, I mean, look, maybe there's just something that we're not clicking mm-hmm. with or getting. Mm-hmm. Well, so... Um, I took a look, a look at it because at the moment it's it's done so well post IPO it's actually worth more than Lyft at the moment which I, I oh. don't know if that's uh, I don't know whether that means Pinterest is overvalued or Lyft is undervalued <laughs> um, I think Lyft probably has a bigger market opportunity but uh, I like the business a lot and the reason that I do is I just finished reading a book called The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg which is an old but well worth it uh, read and there's a chapter in it talking about Target and how in the early noughties, Target became totally obsessed with collecting customer data and hired an awful lot of very smart analytic people to, to sort that data. And they were using it to send out coupons uh, to the users in the mail, trying to entice them in with promotions and stuff. Okay. And the Mount Everest that those analysts were trying to climb was to find out when their customers were pregnant. Uh, before even the, not before they knew they were pregnant, but before they were willing to tell other people they were pregnant. Mm. Um, and, and the reason they wanted to know this so badly was because they found that people spend a huge amount of money around big life-changing events. So getting married, uh, moving house, buying your first apartment uh, and uh, having your first kid, people just spend insane money around those times of their, their life. And so if they knew when people were pregnant, they could get them into the store with promotions for diapers and baby food and all this kind of thing. Uh, and they, they got so good at it, actually, that one day a father walked into Target and started berating the manager because they were sending his 16-year-old daughter coupons for diapers and things like that and he suggested that they were trying to suggest that she become pregnant even though she was still in high school so the manager at Target was very was very apologetic and said he'd look into it and he called back a couple of days to apologize again and the dad actually said actually um, I've had a conversation with my daughter and I think I owe you an apology <laughs> so oh they were they were so good at finding out this information that yeah they were they were mm-hmm. too good at it yeah. and just to bring that back to Pinterest like you said maybe people use it for planning big events for planning their weddings for 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 interior design for uh for that kind of stuff and so they're basically creating mood boards that advertisers can then say or pinterest can say to advertisers at least look this these people are doing a major life thing they're buying a load of stuff in this space this is a great place for you to advertise mm. in front of yeah. so yeah they, they really have built their product around that whole idea and the value of the data they're seeing what consumers are yeah. interested in the trends yeah now, but this conversation has actually piqued my interest in pinterest to the point where I feel inclined to go in and I've always, whenever I've seen something that's blocked with the login to Pinterest screen, I've always closed it. I'm like, I can't be bothered. Now I think I I will bother and and go in and have a look and see what's happening. Yeah, the one thing I'm not so sure about with Pinterest is um, their growth in the US is pretty much flatlined. They've they've kind of hit their peak at 80 million or so users. Um, They're still growing really fast internationally, but they haven't proven yet that they can monetize those users at all at all. Uh, their their average revenue per user in the US is about six six dollars sixty, whereas internationally twenty one cents at the moment. So so the real uh, question with Pinterest is will they be able to monetize those international users going forward? So if somebody handed you a thousand dollars right now and said Pinterest for ten years, why do I keep getting handed a thousand dollars? Because Rory, look under your seat. <laughs> if someone handed you a thousand bucks right now and said Pinterest or the S and P five hundred for five years. What would you go with? Uh, so I haven't looked into it enough, so I probably uh, probably play it safe and look in uh, look at the S and P five hundred. But yeah. I'm still looking at Pinterest. Yeah, yeah. 
So that was our big conversation IPOs. Um, they're kind of getting like Elon Musk is in, in the way that we are talking about them every single episode, but hopefully next uh, next episode we won't be talking about them as much. Um, so let's move on then to our company we never talk about. This is where we pick a company that we believe doesn't get the attention it deserves. Uh, Rory, you're going this week. Yeah, so the one I'm going to talk about is Paycom. Uh, Paycom is one as a human capital management software developer. It was founded by a guy called Chad Richardson back in 1998. It was one of the very first companies to move the payroll process online um, long before the term software as a service came into our lexicon. Uh, I started out just by doing payroll. Uh, it's since expanded into human capital management, as I said, recruitment, uh, talent management, uh, pretty much anything to do with hiring, managing, keeping your staff, keeping your staff happy. Um, it's it's an interesting company because I'm a big fan of companies that, or the, the reason I like SA, uh, SaaS companies in particular is that I think the move to the cloud has been one of those massive changes uh, in the history of business. Yeah. And there was a couple of companies just that were just in the right place at the right time in terms of the infrastructure and had the product that was primed for that shift to happen. Uh, and Paycom definitely was one of those companies. You know, it... it um, they had a smart strategy as well. They targeted small and medium-sized clients, which are the kind of businesses that weren't already locked into kind of big legacy uh, providers. Um, so they, so Workday are doing a kind of similar product, but they're targeting, they're trying to steal uh, business off the likes of Oracle and then the mm. likes of um, uh, SAP, whereas whereas Paycom are going in for businesses that really never had this, this service before or thought it was too small. They were a really underserved market. So the loads of things I like about the business, uh, it's profitable despite being a, a fast-growing tech company. Uh, they've got a nice solid balance sheet, um, very disciplined in how they roll out their, their products and their sales teams. Uh, they consistently beat earnings uh, nearly every quarter in, quarter out, they seem to beat earnings. And they're still growing like crazy, revenue was up 30% last quarter. Uh, and so since we added them to the app about a year and a half ago, they're up 200%. So it's been a nice. great winner for us nice so far. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a great, it's a very interesting company. Chad Richardson is still the CEO, still owns a big amount of the stock. And yeah, it's one, it's one I think if people aren't watching, they should have it on their watch list. Sounds good. And the ticker symbol is? Uh, P-A-Y-C. That was Paycom, the company we never talked about. And um, before we go any further, I just want to let you know about some of the great things we have in the My Wall Street app at the minute, along with Paycom. Uh, we have a new stock of the month coming on Monday. This is the one stock that our analyst team loves most at the moment. Uh, Rory, do you have any hints about the company you want to give? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> so you can uh, check that out on Monday when it goes live in the app. We also have April's expert opinion piece in the app at the moment, which is about IPOs, if we haven't talked about them enough already. And we also have another article in the My Wall Street app at the moment that tells you how much you could have made if you'd invested your tax refund into Amazon, Apple and Netflix over the past 10 years. So you can check all of that out in the My Wall Street app right now. Maeve. Next up is Dragon Busters. We have three items. The first one, I think we've touched on this before, but I have to say this is something that our community asks over and over. So I'm sensing that this is just a quite a a complex personal decision point um, and it's from a user called Ivan so Ivan thanks for sending it in and it's basically asking when should you accumulate cash versus when should you add stocks to your folio so those two moments so when do you you kind of stockpile cash and make sure you're ready to invest and when do you actually go in there's a lot of ways we can answer this question yeah. um, stockpiling cash most people don't feel comfortable with mm. irrespective of the level so if you have a pile of cash in a bank account and you've retired 
killed all your short-term debt, credit card debts, and maybe a car loan, uh, which is a good use of cash, I, I might say. Um, then no one really likes just cash gathering up in a low or, or negative interest bank account. That's just unfortunately the way the world is now, and everyone kind of now knows that cash on the sidelines is losing value on its own. So really, what the question relates to in some respects is, you know, should we time the market? Should we wait because something negative might happen? And there are very few people who can call that accurately, repeatedly. There yeah. are a lot of people who can say, yep, we're about to have a downturn and they get lucky. Mm. Because every day for the last five years, somebody has said a correction, re recession, depression is going to start next month. I can guarantee you everyone are out there for every day of the week of the last five years, somebody has made that call yeah. and those people have been wrong. And one of these days, one of those people will be right. So cash is something, it's a utility. It sits there to help you get through the days, weeks and months ahead of you. And if you have more on the sideline than you need to get through the few months that you can see ahead of you, it really should be an invest, invested. So um, one answer is have enough cash on the sidelines that you can deal with the next few months should a rainy day arise in your personal life and you have no earning power. But the way I've lived my investing life for 25 years is I have never had any. Now, this isn't I'm not saying this is the right thing, but I have been almost 100 percent invested 100 percent at a time. I've had enough cash to deal with the few months rolling ahead yeah. and everything else has gone into stocks and shares. Uh, so what I'm saying is I can't time the market. But what I do know is a matter of measured fact is time in the market beats all else. Yeah. So I'm not trying to avoid a very pointed answer. But that's the best you can do because giving a, I'm trying to give a broad answer, yeah. and everyone has specific considerations. Definitely, it's so a personal. This, it's a personal thing. Decision. So, yeah. retire your debt, get rid of credit card debt, pay off your car loan, have some cash on the sidelines to live your life, and beyond that, you should be investing. Yeah, in I mean, there's a lot of things to consider as well. I mean, think about your own job security. You know, if you yeah. feel like you're, if you feel safe in your job, you probably don't need as big an emergency fund as someone who. Um, who doesn't or who, you know, is thinking of getting into a new career path or anything. That's a, yeah. It's a very personal question. It is. It a very, is. Yeah, it and is. Yeah. Like, I don't know if this is too literal, but something that I do personally and I sometimes um, see our users mention is, you know, being ready to invest when you feel like it's the moment. So literally sure. having your brokerage account funded. And like yeah. Ivan's question is probably about larger uh, pieces of cash, but I always make sure that there is a reasonable amount of cash in my brokerage account. Sure. When I have it and when I'm I'm kind of ready, you know. That's that's an important point to think as well that you you know you you don't you don't like leaving cash sitting there, but it's also good to have some cash. So in the event of you know maybe a stock you're looking at pulls back a little bit, that you're mm -hmm. ready to go with that and yeah. and add to your position when the price looks a little bit uh, better. Yeah. I read an interview um, by the Motley Fool several years ago. I'd say it was about eight or nine years ago at this stage, a member of their community had uh, something like 22% annual returns over a long period of time, 20 years, and was always, I think it was 20 or 30% in cash, Yeah, which was absolutely phenomenal. That, mm. that individual could have so much cash on the sideline and still generate on the overall, the entire portfolio's returns were mm. in the 20%. So it was just huge, worthy of an interview. And... Um, 
and so there are people who very successfully invest, very, very successfully invest and always have a portion of it on the side in cash. I think being fair, if I looked across my entire investing life, while I say I've always 100% been invested, I suppose there's probably one or 2% where I've been in cash in my brokerage account for the rainy day. But I certainly haven't stockpiled cash at any stage in my life. I'm not saying for the next 25 years that will be the right strategy. But what I am saying is it's going to be my strategy. Okay, great. Thanks, Alex. Moving on to a question that was asked by a Twitter user called GasDog. Um, uh, the question is, what type of infrastructure companies should benefit from the advent of 5G? Well, I'll take that. Okay. Um, I have a little bit of history in the industry. So I think I'll start by just explaining what 5G is. So it's 4G plus one. It's the, ne <laughs> <laughs> it's the next one. And it is the most advanced commercial commercialized wireless system. So in theory, 5G can deliver as much as 20 gigs down to your phone or device and 10 gigs up on the uplink. Yeah. So it's it, it, throughput speeds are, are huge and are at the cutting edge. But in, in reality, it won't be so high. I mean, because we really, our phones and our connected devices have as much speed, if you like, uh, as they need at the moment. I think that the real advantage of 5G is its ultra-reliable low latency. So in other words, how fast a frame of video can get from one device to another. Um, so low latency is very desirable in online gaming. So if yeah. I have a headshot at you, James, you know about <laughs> it as soon as I pull the trigger. Um, and the same goes for other services, such as the Skype example we discussed earlier, Maeve, that low latency is, was the, well, high latency was yeah. the problem we were experiencing yesterday with our call to okay. Australia. So, uh, and then many other industries want uber low latency, uh, like, for example, high frequency trading on the capital markets. And yeah. these are, so the, serv the services that demand very, very ultra low latency are going to get it with 5G. So when you think about um, 5G, your, day, your view of mobile equipment comes down to your handset. So whether that's an iPhone or a Samsung or whatever, but that phone is shouting up to antenna systems nearby. And from the antenna that's shouting down and up at your, uh, down to your phone, there is a whole world of equipment behind it that's mm. very, very expensive to deploy. And your network carrier has no doubt has spent hundreds of million, millions of dollars in the last few years building out the 3G and 4G networks, and now they have to go at it all over again for 5G. So um, 5G is a technology that's bringing us towards real-time delivery of information. And there's going to be massive investment in it if it's taking there's that going much infrastructure to be, change. Absolutely. So I, I, that question, paraphrase, James, is do networks need to roll out new equipment for 5G? Yeah. Or can they reuse the existing equipment? And the short answer is they absolutely need to install a whole load of new equipment. In fact, billions of dollars is going to be spent around the world yeah, on smart antenna and small cells and radio yeah. or what's known as RAN equipment, core network equipment, basically the guts of the network that mm. brings your video from uh, your games or, or handset console to the other end. Yeah. So there is going to be a lot of money spent on 5G in the years ahead. Um, and it's going to be a, I suppose, 
I would say a slow rollout, but it's going to be rapid, but it's a massive deployment of tech and money is going to go out there. So thinking about that then, my mind is immediately brought to American Tower. I assume mm -hmm. they would they would benefit massively from this, this rollout, owning that infrastructure. They will. Um, so when you talk about infrastructure, there's lots of different shades of it. Yeah. That, that uh, American Tower REIT is uh, tantamount, it's a landlord. They, they basically have a network of antenna and radio equipment all over the world, as we discussed in a radio. A recent podcast um, and in preparation for this question I rang some friends of mine who uh, have decision making capability in mobile carriers and they have massive budget buying decisions and um, they have a lot of uh, opinions on how that capital is going to be deployed in the years ahead and I think it's certainly worthy of an addition to our app or an expert opinion piece but I think the hot conversation around the world at the moment is Chinese manufacturer Huawei. Yeah. So Huawei as most people are aware is a Chinese vendor of mobile network and sorry telephone network equipment. So um, in recent times, the US has made it clear that they have suspicions that Huawei's technology offers the Chinese government the ability to monitor internet traffic on 5G, yeah. thus making a security risk. And the hot Huawei story of the millisecond is that uh, just over a week ago, the UK's newspaper, The Daily Telegraph, reported that Prime Minister Theresa May had given the go-ahead for Huawei to build a, a, a part of the 5G network in the country. And that, in turn, was ignoring war warnings from senior ministers. And then only yesterday, Mrs May sacked a minister after a probe into the leak of this confidential information. Yeah. So let's just say that Huawei's equipment could be so advanced technically it's from the future, but its deployment is a, is a geopolitical battleground and and therefore it would strike me as imprudent of networks to yeah. roll out Huawei gear. And okay. I think that we have in our sights a very opportunistic investment which will have a long tail of returns and in fact there's a superb investor called Peter Kinney who um, lives in Chicago and he's very very bullish on the stock that we're about to tee up uh, for addition to our app in the, in the weeks and months ahead so um, there's many ways you can you can invest in 5G. We're at a point where I think we can make a call on how to do that. Okay. We won't do it today on the podcast, but certainly I love American Terror as a REIT. It's there already. Yeah. Chipset manufacturers, mm, I wouldn't go there in this conversation just yet, but certainly I, I, I see someone who's positioned to actually capitalise on Huawei's perceived uh, technological indiscretions <laughs> and uh, roll out network around the world. So our, our 5G play is coming to the My it's Wall Street It's coming soon. to My Wall Street app soon. Cool. Okay. Lastly, we have a question about all-time highs. Um, it was a customer of ours from our community wrote in directly basically to talk about the fact that their folio is nearly full of stocks that are close to 52-week highs. And what they're asking us is, how can they go about picking a few that have pulled back from a recent run of gains to kind of feel better about the fact that they have some that are all-time highs? Yeah, so I'll take this because I get, I get the question a lot. Um, and you know, first of all, it's it's great to be able to say so many of our stocks are 52 guys. <laughs> it's a good yeah. problem. Uh, it's a good yeah. problem to have. Uh, but yeah, so first of all, that's just what's going to happen. Like, we're in a very strong market at the moment. Um, and so good companies are going to be um, constantly hitting new highs. 
Um, that's just the way things are. It's the nature of the game. Um, but I wouldn't let people ever let that put them off investing in a company. You know, the, they say the, the most destructive or the most dangerous phrase on Wall Street is this time it'll be different. Um, I would say the concept of all-time highs and lows is probably another very dangerous uh, thing for investors to, to get too invested in. Um, pardon the pun there. Um, it's basically, all-time high, all-time low actually tells you very little about a company. Uh, it doesn't tell you about the company's potential growth. doesn't tell you about their their margins or how their competition's uh, coming at them or or what their long-term strategic advantages are. Um, it's it's really kind of weak and almost lazy way of, of looking at a stock. Um, unless, you ha- unless you have a kind of, you've done a valuation and you, you've decided a, a level at which you're happy to invest in or, ha- or happy to sell in, a uh, 52-week high or all-time high really tells you nothing. And, you know, you could, you could look back at um, Amazon, which... Ten years ago, was at, was at an all time high of one hundred and forty dollars, um, and was considered outrageously expensive. Yeah. Um, and today it's close to two thousand um, dollars. You can use Amazon as an example of anything really, but uh, look look at Mastercard, which seems to hit all time highs nearly every day. Um, so yeah, I think it's 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 something that people shouldn't worry too much about. Companies that are performing well will hit all time highs all the time, um, and continue to hit new all time highs as they go forward. Um, and so you should really you kind of look at a company more a, a, as a business, not worry about the pricing that's going on and just think about uh, what they're doing, what they're planning to do in the future, where they're going to grow or how they're going to grow, uh, whether the customers love their products, whether they have uh, uh, a moat is much more important than worrying about where the stock price is sitting because uh, it, it can go up from an all-time high and down from an all-time low. So. Sure. That reminds me of um, so many stocks I passed on because they're at all-time highs and the one I'll always recall is lying on a beach in Port Douglas in Australia in the year 2002 and looking at an online bookstore valued at, <laughs> eight, at, at, valued at 8 billion and turning to my girlfriend who is now my wife and saying can you believe that a bookshop has managed to <laughs> get a valuation of 8 billion dollars and at the time um David from The Motley Fool, David Gardner, was bullish on it. Um, I, I guess I was early springtime of my investing career. Mm. He had a wisdom that I didn't, and I can tell you one thing now, all-time highs don't put me off. Um, certainly market conditions influence my mm. thinking, but if uh, you have an outstanding business, outstanding businesses will prosper, and yeah. that is just a fact. Uh, it's also great, like the, the idea of a pullback as well. You know, people say, well, wait for a pullback. Well, uh, what pullback are you waiting for? Are you yeah. waiting for a 10% pullback or a 50% pullback? And, you know, if that happens, there's, a re- there's usually a reason for a pullback. Yeah. It's usually not just there so yeah. that you can make an investment. So are you going to look into that? And is that going to dissuade you from investing in the stock or not? Which is a lovely segue, which we're not looking for, into stop losses, which we might talk about sometime, but like how stop losses are one way of killing the value in your portfolio. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Thanks, guys. We are at the elevator pitch moment of the podcast, and I think we're running over today, James. So yeah. let's crack the whip. So, crack the whip. <laughs> um, so the theme today is: What company would you invest in if you were starting from scratch all over again? And who would like to go first, Rory? Okay, sure. Yeah. Uh, so the the stock I'm going to pitch uh, is Amazon. Uh, 
it's an investment in Amazon, I think, is an investment in innovation. Uh, Amazon already has three incredible businesses operating uh, in terms of Amazon Prime, Amazon Marketplace, and Amazon Web Services, which together, are, it's just an incredible network of businesses and customers uh, being joined together. And that's not even taking into account the smaller and perhaps less developed parts of the company. So the, they've got Kindle, they've got Alexa, Alexa they bought Ring last year. Um, they're making moves into healthcare with the acquisition of PillPack. And finally, last but not least, I think they have a huge uh, opportunity in advertising, uh, currently the third biggest digital advertiser in the US behind Google and Facebook. And we can already see them hurting Google's uh, top line in, in Google's most recent earnings report. So yeah, mostly I love Amazon. I love what they, they, they go out there and try new things. Bezos call it the best place to try and fail. And I love that spirit that's there mm. at Amazon. Yeah. Amazon's a good one, all right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and we're moving on to Amos. So, I mean, can, I don't want to beat Amazon. I completely agree with every word that Rory said. But my choice has always been Disney for the reasons that I have espoused so many times in the past. And I suppose I'll keep my pitch very short and simple as that. You can keep an eye on Disney throughout your whole life and you can see their trials and tribulations and wins and losses on the big screen and the small screen and then cruise liners and real estate. They they will be there forever and I don't I would hate to call any business untoppable mm. there is such a word but I think <laughs> Disney is unstoppable okay it's a short one yeah <laughs> Disney was one of my first stocks and although I'm slightly still reeling from Dumbo um <laughs> I'll go with Disney yeah yeah I'd go with Disney too and I think it's just because you kind of look at them with the recent success of the the new Avengers and it's just yeah. Disney plus it's mm. for like are they 100 years old surely around that that age anyway uh, uh, yeah, like for companies that age it's just incredible mm. that they're, they're still putting out so much content like this yeah yeah. Sorry, Rory. That's okay. okay. Don't take it Imagine personally. voting against <laughs> Amazon. I'm going to write down the stock prices. Right I'm, 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 still not, I'm still not convinced by Amazon, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, the $8 billion bookshop, please. Okay, that's it from this week's Stock Club. There's exclusive investing content in the app this week, including the new stock of the month, which will land on Monday, and also all of the latest news from earnings season. As usual, if there's anything that you want us to discuss or explain on the next episode, you can get in touch with us on Twitter or email us directly at pod at mywallstreet.com, spelled P-O-D at mywallst.com. If you enjoy the podcast, we'd be grateful for a review on iTunes or whatever podcast player you use. We want to get to a wider audience. We'll talk to you in two weeks. And as always, happy investing. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.